This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello. In this episode, based around the 21st of October, Trafalgar Day, we're looking at reports from the HMS Victory of the 21st of October in 1805. And we start with Midshipman Bulldog's report from 10 o'clock in the morning. Trafalgar, of course, was the decisive naval engagement of the Napoleonic Wars, and it was fought to the west of Cadiz. 20 of the 33 French and Spanish were destroyed or captured, and none of the 27 British ships were lost. So here is Midshipman Badcock's report. At this period, the enemy were forming their double line in the shape of a crescent. It was a beautiful sight when the line was completed. Their broadsides turned towards us, showing their iron teeth, and now and then trying the range of a shot to ascertain the distance that they might, the moment we came within point blank, about 600 yards, open their fire upon our van ships, no doubt with the hope of dismasting some of our leading vessels before they could close and break their line. Some of the enemy's ships were painted like ourselves with double yellow sides, some with a broad single red or yellow streak, others all black, and the noble Santissima Trinidad 138 guns with four distinct lines of red, with a white ribbon between them, made her seem to be a superb man of war, which, indeed, she was. Her appearance was imposing, her head splendidly ornamented with a colossal group of figures painted white, representing the Holy Trinity, from which she took her name. This magnificent ship was destined to be our opponent, she was lying to under topsails, topgallant sails, royals, jib and spanker. Her courses were hauled up and her lofty towering sails looked beautiful, peering through the smoke as she awaited the onset. The flags of France and Spain, both handsome, checkered the line, waving defiance to that of Britain. In our fleet, Union Jacks and Ensigns were made fast to the fore and fore topmast stays, as well to the mizzen rigging, besides one of the peak, in order that we might not mistake each other in the smoke and to show the enemy our determination to conquer. Towards eleven, our two lines were better formed, but still there existed long gaps in Vice Admiral Collingwood's division. Lord Nelson's van was strong, three three-deckers, Victory, Timorea and Neptune, and four seventy-fours, their jib-booms nearly over the other's taffrails. The bands playing God Save the King, Rule Britannia and Britain Strike Home, the crews stationed on the forecastles of the different ships, cheering the ship ahead of them when the enemy began to fire, sent those feelings to our hearts that ensured victory. About ten minutes before twelve, our antagonists opened their fire upon the Royal Sovereign, 110 guns. Vice Admiral Collingwood, who most nobly and unsupported for at least ten minutes, led his division into action, steering for the Santa Ana, 112 guns, which was painted all black, bearing the flag of Admiral Gravina, during which time all the enemy's line that could possibly bring gun to bear were firing at her. She was the admiration of the whole fleet. 
To show the great and mastermind of Nelson, who was thinking of everything, even in the momentous hour of battle, when most minds would have been totally absorbed in other matters, it was remarked by him that the enemy had the iron hoops around their masts painted black. Orders were issued by signal to whitewash those of his fleet, that in the event of all the ensigns being shot away, his ships might be distinguished by their white masts and hoops. We continue now as Nelson sends the signal England expects that every man this day will do his duty, which was sent at noon on the 21st of October 1805, Lieutenant George Brown reports. I was on the poop and quarterdeck whilst preparations for the fight were going on and saw Lord Nelson, Captain Blackwood and some other captains of the frigates in earnest conversation together and a slip of paper in the hand of the former, which Captain Blackwood had looked at, Yet I have no recollection that I ever saw it pass through other hands till it was given to Pasco, who, after referring to the telegraph signal book, took it back to his lordship, and it was then that I believe the substitution of the words took place. I think, though not sure, the substitution was expects for the word confides, the latter word not being in the telegraph book, and I think the word England had been previously substituted for Nelson for the same reason at the suggestion of Captain Blackwood. So the signal is set, and now we receive the reception of it on board HMS Ajax, reported by Marine Officer Lieutenant Ellis. I was desired to inform those on the main deck of the Admiral's signal. Upon acquainting one of the quartermasters of the order, he assembled the men with, Avast there, lads, come and hear the Admiral's words. When the men were mustered, I delivered with becoming dignity the sentence, rather anticipating that the effect on the men would be to awe them by its grandeur. Jack, however, didn't appreciate it, for there were murmurs from some, whilst others in an audible whisper muttered, Do our duty? Of course we'll do our duty. I've always done mine, haven't you? Let's come alongside of them and we'll show them whether we'll do our duty. Still, the men cheered vociferously, more, I believe, from love and admiration of their admiral and leader than from a full appreciation of this well-known signal. Before we continue with the story of Trafalgar, we move forward 124 years to October the 21st, 1929, and a Daily Telegraph report from their own correspondent in New York. A spectacular crash on the stock market yesterday ruined tens of thousands of small speculators and involved a depreciation of security values variously estimated at from £2,000 million to £3,000 million. It was Black Saturday for Wall Street and today groups of financiers met to consider the situation which affects every part of the country. The handwriting on the wall indicates that the bull movement of the last five years has definitely given way to a liquidating market and that there is no certainty that the shares dumped upon the market yesterday will be snapped up as hoped by investment trusts and other large financial buyers. The strength of the wave of selling which engulfed the market is shown by the fact that during the first half hour trading was at the rate of more than 8,500,000 shares for the customary full five-hour day. The tape machine was overburdened and it was not until an hour and 25 minutes after the 12 o'clock closing gong had sounded that the final prices were known even to traders. 
The frantic selling rush was chiefly in small lots by frightened or overextended speculators from every part of the country. The immediate fate of the market depends upon conferences over the weekend regarding proposals for organised support to check the decline. Among the factors which contributed to yesterday's selling, if Wall Street reports are true, were sensational operations by Mr Jesse Livermore. Mr Livermore is known to Wall Street as the best man on stock market tape speculation the world has ever known. He's a clever bear, willing to stake his last cent on his own judgment, but cannot be held to be entirely responsible for what occurred, though the circumstances were exceptionally favourable for such a plunging speculator. As a boy, Mr Livermore was a tape machine board marker in a Boston brokerage house and developed such skill that he acquired the name of the boy plunger. He's made millions, lost them and recovered. It was not, however, until the last two or three weeks that Wall Street began to associate his name with every decline. Mr Livermore is a fastidious, well-dressed man who rides in Rolls-Royce cars and owns half a dozen residences and probably the most luxurious offices in New York. Mr Arthur Cutton, the most prominent of bulls with whom Mr Livermore has waged a titanic struggle on the stock market, is in many respects very different. He is calm, slow of speech, while Mr Livermore is quick, nervous, excitable. There is no personal battle between the two men, but they represent the direct pull and haul against each other of a wide variety of economic factors, all of them powerful. And now we go back to uh, 25 years before Trafalgar, to the 20th of October 1782, and a young midshipman, James Anthony Gardner, in action against the French. He was only 12 on this day when he wrote this. Owing to the light winds and the enemy repeatedly hauling up and then bearing away, it was near 6pm before he formed his line. A three-decker, supposed to be the Royal Louis, leading his van, began the action by firing into the Goliath, who were led ours. The action continued from 6pm until three quarters past ten. The van and rear chiefly engaged, the centre had little to do. The enemy's centre extended to our rearmost ship, so that 11 or 12 of them, the whole of their rear, never fired a shot. We had four killed and 16 wounded, among the former Mr Robert Sturges, midshipman during doing duty as a mate, a gentleman highly respected and lamented by every officer and man on board. I was placed with another youngster under his care, and he took the greatest pains to teach us our duty. He was as brave a fellow as ever lived, and when his thigh was nearly shot off by the hip, he cheered the men when dying. It was a spent shot that killed him, and weighed 28 pounds, and what was remarkable, it took off the same time the leg of a pig in the sky, sty under the forecastle. I had a very narrow escape while standing on the quarter-deck with Captain Forrester of the Marines. The first lieutenant, the late Admiral Alexander Fraser, came up to us, and while speaking, a shot passed between us and stuck on the larboard side on the quarter-deck. We were very close at the time, so that it could only have been a few inches from us. It knocked the speaking trumpet out of Fraser's hand and seemed to have electrified Captain Forrester and myself. The shot was cut out and weighed either 12 or 18 pounds, I forget which. Our rigging fore and aft was cut to pieces, the booms and boats also, and every timberhead on the forecastle, with the sheet and spare anchor stocks, was shot away and the fluke of the latter. 
outside, from the foremost gun to the after, was like a riddle, and it was astonishing that we had not more killed than wounded. Several shot holes were under water, and our worthy old carpenter, Mr. Cock, had been very near killed in the wing, and was knocked down by a splinter, but not materially hurt. The enemy set off in the night and could only be seen from the masthead in the morning. It was supposed they went for Cadiz. A curious circumstance took place during the action. Two of the boys who had gone down for the powder fell out in consequence of one attempting to take the box from the other when a regular fight took place. It was laughable to see them boxing on the larboard side and the ship in hot action on the starboard. One of our poor fellows was cut in two by a double-headed shot on the main deck and the lining of his stomach, about the size of a pancake, stuck on the side of the launch which was stowed amidships on the main deck with a sheep inside. The butcher who had the care of them, observing what was on the side of the boat, began to scrape it off with his nails, saying, Who the devil would have thought the fellow's paunch would have stuck so? I'm damned if I don't think it's glued on. Well, I wonder if Midshipman Gardner was still in the Navy in 1805, and if so, whether he was actually at Trafalgar. But we now come to the end of the 21st of October 1805, and Dr. William Beatty's report on the death of Lord Nelson. It was from this ship, the Redoubtable, that Lord Nelson received his mortal wound. About 15 minutes past one o'clock, which was in the heat of the engagement, he was walking in the middle of quarterdeck with Captain Hardy, and in the act of turning near the hatchway with his face towards the stern of the victory, when the fatal ball was fired from the enemy's mizzen top, which from the situation of the two ships lying on board of each other, was brought just abaft and rather below the victory's main yard, and of course not more than fifteen yards distant from that part of the deck where his lordship stood. The ball struck the epaulet of his left shoulder and penetrated his chest. He fell with his face on the deck. Captain Hardy, who was on his right, the side furthest from the enemy, and advanced some steps before his lordship, on turning round, saw the Sergeant Major Secker of Marines with two seamen raising him from the deck, where he had fallen on the same spot on which, a little before, his secretary has breathed his last, with whose blood his lordship's clothes were much soiled. Captain Hardy expressed a hope that he was not severely wounded, to which the gallant chief replied, "'They've done for me at last, Hardy.' I hope not, answered Hardy. Yes, replied his lordship, my backbone is shot through. Captain Hardy ordered the seaman to carry the admiral to the cockpit and now two incidents occurred strikingly characteristic of this great man and strongly marking that energy and reflection which in his heroic mind rose superior even to the immediate consideration of his present awful condition. While the men were carrying him down the ladder from the middle deck, his lordship observed that the tiller ropes were not yet replaced and desired one of the midshipmen stationed there to go upon the quarter deck and remind Captain Hardy of that circumstance and request that new one should be immediately rove. Having delivered this order, he took his handkerchief from his pocket and covered his face with it that he might be conveyed to the cockpit at this crisis unnoticed by the crew. The victory's crew cheered whenever they observed an enemy's ship surrender. On one of these occasions, Lord Nelson anxiously inquired what was the cause of it, when Lieutenant Pascoe, who lay wounded at some distance from his lordship, raised himself up and told him that another ship had been struck, which appeared to give him much satisfaction. He now felt an ardent thirst, and frequently called for drink, and to be fanned with paper, making use of these words, fan, fan, and drink, drink. 
This he continued to repeat when he wished for drink or the refreshment of cool air till a very few minutes before he expired. His lordship now requested the surgeon, who had been previously absent a short time attending Mr. Rivers to return to the wounded, and give his assistance to such of them as he could be useful to. For, said he, you can do nothing for me. The surgeon assured him that the assistant surgeons were doing everything that could be effected for those unfortunate men, but on his lordship several times repeating his injunctions for, to that purpose, he left him, surrounded by Dr. Scott, Mr. Burke, and two of his lordship's domestics. After the surgeon had been absent a few minutes attending Lieutenants Peake and Reeves of the Marines who were wounded, he was called by Dr. Scott to his lordship who said, Ah, Mr. Beatty, I've sent for you to say what I forgot to tell you before, that all power of motion and feeling by my, below my breast are gone, and you, continued he, very well know I can live but a short time. The emphatic manner in which he pronounced these last words left no doubt in the surgeon's mind that he adverted to the case of a man who had some months before received a mortal injury of the spine on board the Victory and had laboured under similar privations of sense and muscular motion. The case had made a great impression on Lord Nelson. He was anxious to know the cause of such symptoms, which was accordingly explained to him, and he now appeared to apply the situation and fate of this man to himself. The surgeon answered, My lord, you told me so before, but he now examined, examined the extremities to ascertain the fact. When his lordship said, Ah, Beatty, I'm too certain of it. Scott and Burke have tried it already. You know I'm gone. The surgeon replied, My lord, unhappily for our country, nothing can be done for you. And having made this declaration, he was so much affected that he turned round and withdrew a few steps to conceal his emotions. His lordship said, I know it. I feel something rising in my breast. Putting his hand on his left side, which tells me I am gone. Drink was recommended liberally, and Dr. Scott and Mr. Burke fanned him with paper. He often exclaimed, God be praised, I've done my duty. And upon the surgeon's inquiring whether his pain was still very great, he declared it continued so very severe that he wished he was dead. Yet, said he in a lower voice, one would like to live a little longer too. And after a pause of a few minutes, he added in the same tone, What would become of poor Lady Hamilton if she knew my situation? Captain Hardy now came to the cockpit to see his lordship a second time, which was after an interval of about 50 minutes from the conclusion of the first visit. Before he quitted the deck, he sent Lieutenant Hills to acquaint Admiral Collingwood with the lamentable circumstance of Lord Nelson's being wounded. Lord Nelson and Captain Hardy shook hands again, and while the captain retained his lordship's hand, he congratulated him, even in the arms of death, on his brilliant victory, which, said he, was complete, though we did not know how many of the enemy were captured, as it was impossible to perceive every ship distinctly. He was certain, however, of 14 or 15 having surrendered. His lordship answered, That is well, but I bargained for 20, and then emphatically exclaimed, Anchor, Hardy, anchor! To this the captain replied, I suppose, my lord, Admiral Collingwood will now take upon himself the direction of affairs. Not while I live, I hope, Hardy, cried the dying chief, and at that moment endeavoured ineffectually to raise himself from the bed. No, added he, do you anchor, Hardy? Captain Hardy then said, shall we make the signal, sir? Yes, answered his lordship, for if I live, I'll anchor. 
The energetic manner in which he uttered these his last orders to Captain Hardy, accompanied with his efforts to raise himself, evinced his determination never to resign the command while he retained the exercise of his transcendent faculties, and that he expected Captain Hardy still to carry into effect the suggestions of his exalted mind, a sense of his duty overcoming the pains of death. He then told Captain Hardy he felt that in a few minutes he should be no more, adding in a low turn, Don't throw me overboard, Hardy. The captain answered, Oh no, certainly not. Then replied his lordship, You know what to do. And continued he, Take care of my dear Lady Hamilton, Hardy. Take care of poor Lady Hamilton. Kiss me, Hardy. The captain now knelt down and kissed his cheek when his lordship said, Now I am satisfied. Thank God I've done my duty. Captain Hardy stood for a minute or two in silent contemplation. He knelt down again and kissed his lordship's forehead. His lordship said, Who is that? The captain answered, It is Hardy. To which his lordship replied, God bless you, Hardy. His thirst now increased and he called for drink, drink, fan, fan and rub, rub, addressing himself in the last case to Dr. Scott, who had been rubbing his lordship's breast with his hand from which he found some relief. These words he spoke in a very rapid manner which rendered his articulation difficult but he every now and then, with evident increase of pain, made a greater effort with his vocal powers and pronounced distinctly these last words. Thank God I've done my duty. And this great sentiment he continued to repeat as long as he was able to give it utterance. Just as a postscript to that episode, of course, whilst that day, the 21st of October 1805, was the last day of Admiral Nelson's life, it was not the end of the victory. And as of now, with 243 years of service as of 2021, the flagship of the First Sea Lord of the Navy, she is still a commissioned naval ship, albeit in dry dock, in Portsmouth. HMS Victory, Nelson's flagship and the flagship of the first Sea Lord of the Admiralty of the Royal Navy. 243 years of active service. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias www.soundimage.org